Hello, my name is Joel McLeod. I'm Roland Tanner. And welcome to another episode of the 905er Roundup. Just before we get into all the fun tonight, let's uh, just remind our listeners to, if you want to help us keep going, if you want to help support this podcast, please think about giving us a few dollars. Go visit our Buy Me a Coffee account, or better yet, subscribe to us through Patreon. Links are all in the show notes. Every little dollar that you give us helps us keep going and helps us continue to tell the stories and talk about the issues that are important to you here in the 905. So please, once you're finished listening to this podcast, go to the show notes, click on the links, throw us a few dollars. It'll be greatly appreciated by uh, Roland and myself. That being said, on with the show. Roland, what do you have for us? Well... Possibly the third horseman of the apocalypse. I don't know. The the signals of the end times are approaching, as the Toronto Sun had an article this week advocating for bike lanes. Uh, and I'm kidding. I mean, this is, this is great. I mean, it's good for the Toronto Sun. We don't often get to say that. They had an article on October the 24th about bike lanes integral to global movement away from cars. And yeah. No kidding. Um, the Toronto Sun? Like the, the, yeah, the real I, I, Toronto we Sun. We can't, I mean, be, uh, we can't be any bluer than uh, Tory Blue. The, the, we, we can't dig far enough for oil. Toronto Sun said this. The official nuke and pave uh, <laughs> newspaper of, uh, of Ontario. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I mean, surprising, but welcome. And suggests that maybe, I mean, I, I just picked this up from uh, comments on. Uh, on Twitter by someone who I've sorry I can't remember who it was saying you know this this may be is the indication that the 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 kind of embracing cycling as, as a real mass method of getting around is really gaining um, headway and, but you know this this kind of feeds in just with my my own experience at the moment where I'm all of a sudden cycling a lot more and making use of Hamilton's uh, bike share program which is awesome because even though i have a bike of my own it's currently living on a balcony and somewhat rusty and i don't want to drag it up and down stairs five times a day or even five times a week so jumping on uh, one of hamilton's bikes is really good very efficient and very cheap and the people who look after the bar- bikes are super friendly and yeah it's it's a, it's a good it's a good system and and hopefully i mean it's definitely one of the advantages of moving to a large city over a medium-sized city that these these kind of developments are a year or so or a couple of years ahead of some of the other municipalities in, in Ontario. So, you know, living here, I can seriously consider not owning a car. I don't know what decision I'll ultimately make, but right now I can experiment with not having a car. But isn't, but isn't um, that kind of what the future is holding for cities. I mean, we, we've talked a number of times on the podcast about how the cities in the 905 are growing beyond the commuter suburb idea that they once were. And they're, they're, we're growing into something different. We're, I, don't, I wouldn't say we're going to like a, a megalopolis or anything like that, but we're, we're not, we're definitely not the, the quaint, the quaint, quiet suburb commuter hub that, that we, people sometimes, I think some people still think we are. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 and the, absolutely. And I think it's something we should embrace. I mean, I think so often, well, certainly in Burlington, the issue of bike lanes has been highly controversial in, in recent years. There was an abortive attempt to 
introduced bike lanes on New Street, which for people who don't live in Burlington is one of the main kind of thoroughfares through the city from downtown to Oakville. And it was just done really badly and really unfortunately, and it created a massive public kickback against it, which partly was because they introduced the bike lanes exactly the same time as the entire road was dug up for about six months to a year. I can't well, remember it, how long it was. There was also the issue of there's a perfectly viable bike path that ran parallel to the entire route that a lot of people were saying, why do we need to spend money to cut off road lanes when there's a perfectly good bike path that runs the entire length of the, of the road right next to it, when really all you had to do was just install probably a bit more illumination so it could be used 24-7. And instead, there was this whole like, oh, we got, we got to reduce the bike, the path down and, and create, increase congestion and, and whatnot, which kind of, I mean, it, it was it's one of those situations where it kind of showed the exact wrong solution to a very real problem, which is it showed that there are a lot of cars on the road in in the 905, like just not going between, but just in in our communities. There's a ton of cars on the road that we're, we're kind of running out of just place to put them. You know, we, we, you know, the idea of like a car share or a bike share is a great way to kind of uh, to change that thinking a, a bit and to and to to reduce the dependency on on cars, which I think honestly terrifies a lot of people around the nine hundred five. It does. I mean, it's. it's uh, I mean, as cycling advocates will point out constantly. Uh, we all think of Holland and Denmark, or Netherlands and Denmark, sorry, when uh, we think about cycling. And if you go back to the 70s, they had exactly the same level of cycling as as the rest of the Western world does. The only difference is that their governments um, invested for decades and decades in cycling infrastructure, and the end result is massive cycling use as a primary means of getting around which leads, of course, to lots of other, other benefits in terms of public health and on and on it goes, environment, obviously. But, you know, it's kind of coming off of our conversation with Nancy earlier in the week that, you know, we, we talk about, it, it's, it comes down to, the, yeah, our, our leadership. Our leadership just is kind of all hell-bent on this. We just need to keep expanding. There's no other option but to build another neighborhood, to build, you know, to extend the road a few more kilometers down the road. and you know, that, that field can be turned into 20 homes or, or whatever have you. And this is the, th the problem is that, you know, we were just talking about before we came on, the, came on the air. If you think about it, the average family has two cars to it. So for every home that you're building in the 905, you got to think you're probably adding double the cars to the roadways. We're, we're, and we're not building really more commuter routes we're just building more houses and what like all this like the stuff just mat it does matter we go we we keep adding mm -hmm. to it but we don't really have anywhere to put it ultimately well and and, and yeah i mean how actually i think um i think nancy made exactly this point but it's one i've been familiar with before from other cities in north america so it happened in hamilton happened in buffalo you know it happened i mean in the gta we tend to we don't think of it as Toronto expanding. We think of Mississauga and we think of Brampton and Markham. However, the effect is basically the same. All these cities doubled in size post-war without necessarily 
seeing a population increase. So certainly Hamilton didn't see a population increase, but it saw a geographical increase of, of 100%. Same with Buffalo. Yeah, and we know that those that, that simultaneously that that created huge urban, you know, urban blight basically with this kind of what's often called white flight from downtowns right. into the burbs that that literally kind of kills the centres of cities. Uh, and we're undoing all that now, and we've learnt the lessons. You know, we've learnt the lessons of of the past, hopefully. But of course, with the current provincial government, it's you know really the, the the one thing this government has as a kind of guiding principle is build and drive. You know, it, it's that you know our God-given right to have a, a black Escalade or whatever that just has to change. I mean, and and I I don't even think we're we we talk about increasing the number of cyclists and all these things. I don't think we're being revolutionary, and we're not saying you know. Nobody's saying that we don't still need cars, um, uh, but I mean, again, in, in Hamilton, you can. There are zip cars now. There are uh, other car sharing uh, initiatives, which are incredibly cheap. Because I've just been looking at them this this week. You can rent a car for a couple of hours for six bucks. Go and do your groceries with it. Return it back. And you're done. Well, um, and you, it's cheaper than, a, it, than an Uber. I think about it. Like again, the pandemic has shown kind of like how we can get away with this is the increase of delivery services you know it, we, over during the course of the pandemic everybody was panicking over oh my gosh we got to go get groceries how are we going to get into grocery stores to buy my my produce and my, my my meat and veggies and all that stuff my my family has shifted over into ordering online and we go pick up from the grocery store you know just show up call in hey we're here okay they run out the the order to our our car easy peasy but we've seen, you know, again, the the entrepreneurial spirit has shown that oh, now these companies are getting into delivery. You or you pay for your groceries and you get it delivered in a in a neat crate and neat tote, and you're you're good to go. Put away your eggs and your bread and milk and all that. The notion of oh, well, I need a car because I need to go get groceries. I need to go do this errand. I need to do this, this, this. I don't think holds mustard anymore. We we ha- we are able to get things delivered to our doors that we need. We got it done for two years with COVID. We got essentials like groceries delivered. It can be done, and that that and it's like the the idea of oh, we need to buy, build these massive sprawling neighborhoods anymore. We've kind of proven to ourselves that we don't need it. We can get away with it. The question is, do we just continue to go with that and see the possibilities of going down that road, and the fact that we can we can go greater intensification for neighborhoods, more green space possibly for people to go play and live and, and, and all that fun stuff. But we're still able to keep the economy going because yeah, we can get food and goods and all that stuff delivered to our door now and whatnot. It's actually a, a related point. Occurred to, well, it didn't occur to me the other day. It occurred to someone else that I was watching on uh, on YouTube. <laughs> uh, actually a British comedian talking about the amount of land that is given over to golf courses in cities. Now, at the moment, these golf courses in Ontario are, are um, highly sought after by developers. Again, guess what? Because golf courses are, are not protected. They're, they're, you know, basically, they only have to be golf courses. I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but as I understand it, they only have to be golf courses for as long as the city has them designated as 
as golf courses basically and you can convert that to housing very easily whereas almost any other kind of development in built-up areas is gray field sites that have to be redeveloped that have more legal complexities or you're dealing with the green belt or whatever it's, i was thinking that you know all these golf courses a, it's kind of disgusting how much land we've given to a few rich people to have as parkland, as private parkland, when there's so little public parkland in any city in Ontario. But if you compare it to, say, Paris or London or places like that, I have these vast inner city parks. But we have an opportunity, if we had any imagination, to say, well, let's have every city in Ontario suddenly have a big new public mm -hmm. park that is truly spacious where you can go and spend the entire weekend hanging out with friends have a picnic and, and get away under the trees you know so you're not not like spencer smith park which is a great park or or the parks in hamilton which again nothing against them but they're not very big a city should have that kind well, of wait, well, you know almost like well, lungs of the city of kind is, of, uh, uh, I'm immediately i'm going to halifax nova scotia which if you haven't been definitely go visit but they have a, like a gigantic park called the commons so it's a essentially as it as it sounds a common public area that can be used for concerts and festivals and or just you know go fly a frisbee fly a kite you know have a picnic whatever it's a common area for the city to enjoy and yeah i agree like that that would be a fun i, I think the possibilities of that tie, tying into a city infrastructure has a lot of perks and a lot of benefits to it it's just you know the, i guess Part of it, like what sparked this was our conversation with Nancy uh, Hurst uh, in our previous episode where we were talking about the this kind of pathological need to just constantly expand. And, uh, you know, we've, we've talked about it in previous episodes in Hamilton is that ha Hamilton has a lot to offer. There's a, there's a lot of potential there. It's just for some reason people are just giving up on certain neighborhoods. Like downtown, there's a ton of just mm -hmm. parking lots. And buildings that are in vital need of either a complete teardown and rebuild or massive injection of funds to rebuild and repurpose, but it's not happening because it, the intention is, oh, we need to we need to build the next neighborhood, and it's like, well, why why not build why not build a new some more livable space in the downtown core in the east end of Hamilton, and give people a reason to stay there, to live, to thrive, and contribute to the economy uh in in the actual city city proper and i i think it's coming frankly because the the demand for land is so much that developers aren't going to say they're not going to ignore an opportunity and eastern hamilton is an opportunity and i, I do feel that you know, even in in the last 10 15 years you're you're seeing the the gems in amongst the in amongst the parking lots in Hamilton that are, are starting to grow. So it's almost like they seeded Lock Street and they seeded James Street and they seeded various other places, and they are starting to kind of expand out from those uh, those original mm -hmm. spots into a, into a broader. But it's it's taking time. But I mean, I do think much as we've both been highly critical of the current council and previous councils. We are seeing change underway in Hamilton. That's partly because of the pressure that's coming from Toronto. That um, you know, and there's so many things, good things happening now that I think 
Hamilton's at that turning point and probably passed it with, you know, the go train, having a proper go train service yep. finally. Isn't it amazing to think that Hamilton <laughs> didn't have a go train service for so long? I mean, it's just Absolutely. like seriously. The transformation, the transformation is coming and the development will come too. Hopefully it's done well and appropriately. I mean, following up from that golf course point I just made, but how amazing would it be if we said rather than a couple of thousand golfers getting these huge areas inside cities to, to play, I've got nothing against golfers, but there's plenty of golf courses in this world. How about we turn those into public parks? Well, if, a, if a city did that right now and said, okay, we've got a municipal golf course, we're going to turn that into Burlington people's commons or something you know to give it a kind of grandiose title what that would immediately get appealed to the lpat because that would be appealable and there's the developers would say no no you can't turn in that into a park because we could be building on it and it would be appealed and that again everything comes back to that damn organization and, and the extent to which the cities need to be able to do some things without having it all appealed constantly um, as well, shouldn't we just be building on this? Yeah, and I, I've gone about that point far too many times, but you know, all, all, road lead, all roads lead to Rome, I guess. <laughs> Moving on to another subject, uh, you you you've been looking at something about the uh, current <laughs> vaccination numbers. Yeah, uh, well, don't, don't around the like I'm, a, I'm a mathematician because I'm far from it. But the you know we, we as much as people want to believe we're all out of it, you know, COVID is still a part of our lives. It's that unwelcome guest that just can't seem to get the hint to go away. And I'm beginning to think it never will. But in the spectator uh, today, Joanna Fricach, uh, a journalist, wrote an article titled Hamilton needs 29,000 more to get COVID shot. And that number is important because that 29,000 gets Hamilton to 90% vaccination. And that's just right now. That's just the eligible members uh, of the population. That's not that's not everybody uh, of the entire population. That's just the eleven and up, twelve and up uh, crowd. So, and the importance of that is that we right now uh, she reports that Hamilton's at eighty point six percent as of Monday, which is on one of Ontario's lowest rates of uh, COVID vaccination. And this is like fully vaccinated. Um, we're seeing. An up uptake, but the or the uptake is decreasing uh, because the majority of these shots are now just the second doses. People following up and getting their their full dose, so we're not seeing that remaining tw ten to twenty percent getting their their full dose. And that's, I, I think it's noteworthy because uh, if everybody everybody's eager the, about the Ford government announcing last week that oh hey. We're, you know, starting in January, all those vaccine requirements that we thought were going to, we're going to be around. Nope. They're gone. That, that COVID vaccine app that we we're all sitting there, how waiting, waiting to download and figuring how to add it to our, uh, our iPhones and, and smartphones and whatnot. That's all been, uh, that's all, all, all pointless. It's all, we're, we're throwing it out right at the window. And I, I find it's an issue because a, I, I view it as a capitulation to stupidity. Is that's how I'm gonna I'm gonna phrase it. Is that we we know who the I, I know who these remaining twenty percent are. These these twenty percent at this point these are the the anti-vax, anti-science crowd. They that's them. They are 
they're, they're the ones they're the ones holding out. But at this at this point, I I gotta believe the majority of of us have got our shots. We're we're moving on. You know, we're all, we're healthier for it. But the the that remaining like the, this is this isn't the hesitant. This isn't the the we need. We, I need to figure it out. This is clearly. The majority of these people are the anti-vax, anti-science. These are the people who are shouting outside your hospitals and, and blocking ERs and, uh, during the election. And basically, in my opinion, Doug Ford is just capitulating to them. He's saying, "Fine, you guys win. We're, we're not going to. We're not. Gonna, yeah, go ahead. Because I'm probably going to say something bad. <laughs> well, I'll say something bad instead. Um, morons." Um, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I and I thought from an even from an electoral point of view, I don't see the mm -hmm. point because those twenty percent of people, um, I don't. I'm not aware that are, are the PPC running in uh, the provincial election. I wasn't aware that they were. Um, those those twenty percent are going to vote conservative yeah. by and large. I'd say fifteen of the twenty percent. So th th those votes are in the back. So if you're trying to please a contingent because you want to make sure you have them in the next election, don't bother. You've already got them. So what is it? Well, I mean, what I think it is, is that the modern conservative parties in Canada, their rank and file and their elected uh, leaders are the most extreme part of that party. You know, the, the maybe moderate people and there are many, many, many millions of moderate people who vote conservative who are not foaming at the mouth idiots. Who are smart people in favor of economic I'll be honest, what I, what probity I, what or whatever. I think it is, is this. We've heard it reported in the, in the press that during this pandemic, Doug Ford had a hard time saying no. He, he had a hard time when you had backbench MPPs walking into its office saying, my, my people don't want lockdowns. My people don't want to deal with uh, restrictions. We don't. We don't need a mask mandate. We don't need all this. 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 And that's why you'd hear. I mean, he, you, you want to flash back through the through the pandemic. You'd hear Doug Ford say one thing, and then the science. You know, the doctors, the scientists, the epidemiologists would all say, "No, that's the complete opposite of what we need." And he's, "Oh, okay." And the next, you know, two days later, backtrack and, and reverse it. And the reason, apparently, the reported in the you know the Star and other media. It's because Doug Ford has a hard time standing up to certain members of his caucus and saying he, he wants to be a people people pleaser. And the problem is he he, he can't say yeah, no. The sign, you know, suck it up, stay indoors, wear a goddamn mask. It's going to be okay. Now that we have vaccines and the lights literally there, you know, to tell you know the, 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 this app is exactly what you need. You can have I, my wife and I went out for for dinner the other night. No, sorry, I went out for a bite to eat, and I sat down uh, to meet with with somebody, and we were excited because I got to take out my my new QR code, and the the hostess got to take out her her phone, and she scanned my phone. And it was like, hey, yay, you know. We're all safe. You know, it was, it was fun. <laughs> it took a whole a total of two seconds, mm -hmm. and no, my privacy was not infringed. Whatever, I went in, had a beer, met with met with uh, the person I was meeting with. Great conversation, and uh, all all's well. But you know, to say okay, we're going to throw that out the window, and I'm like, why? What? Like what? What? Why? COVID didn't leave. It's still here. And I'm sorry, but the every scientist and epidemiologist warns us. The Delta variant was bad, um, 
but other variants could exist and the, they're going to exist in that 20%. That that 20% is where it's going to it's going to oh, mutate yeah. and germinate and the the risk that we all that we know we're going to pose is that it's going to beat the vaccine. We're going to get something worse that the vaccine doesn't protect us from. And I'm sorry, but like you, you, you now you're not your liability. Your liability to the rest of us is the is the real issue here. Yeah, and we've always had diseases, or for hundreds and hundreds of years, we've had diseases that are, um, that that are notifiable. In other words, that we we you know if you have rabies, you're not going to be allowed to wander the streets with rabies for any great amount of time. And there are many other diseases that fall into the same category where they are so contagious or they're so inherently dangerous that you cannot go out with them. Um, so this is nothing new that that public health, that the global public health trumps the individual right to freedom sometimes. And yeah, that sucks, but um, it's a very, very minor inconvenience for the sake of the, the wider good. I mean, they, there's no point even arguing these points. We know it. Don't. They know it. Um, like our listeners well, know it. And it, it just, yeah, it, but I mean, it, we, we can't, it's, it, I'm kind of past the point of trying to win the argument. The science is on my, on our side. The, the science, the, you know, the science works. It's verified. The, the vaccines are safe. Um, right now, if you're not going to take the vaccine, you're a liability to the rest of us. So stay out of our way. And the only way to do that is, Mask mandates and vaccine passports, and I, 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 the fact that like I don't, I don't see any reason why if I'm in that remaining twenty percent in Hamilton, why, wh- like, wh- why, why would you get your vaccine at this point? Because even if you might have been on the fence, maybe, maybe you're you had a scheduling issue. There's no, there's no stress anymore. In January, this the provincial government is lifting all the restrictions. You can just, all right, I'm gonna go. I can go about my business. So that's one in five people that you pass on the street are not vaccinated, not including children who are generally not vaccinated either yet. Um, what is it? Are we yeah. still at twelve years old? I can't remember yeah. what the age is, but yeah. Um, so one in five adults and all children are unvaccinated still. Yeah, I, I don't get it. And, and I think the really, the really interesting point is that you made about Doug Ford is that he has been throughout his premiership a weak mm-hmm. uh, premier. He is vacillating. He is weak. He is led by the last voice that he heard. Uh, this is what happens when you have a premier who is not very bright, uh, who is not well educated. You know, I hate the fact that in this modern age people don't point out the obvious Doug Ford is not a clever man um, he's never shown any interest in learning anything that he doesn't know already because he thinks his gut instinct is all he needs and he's dead wrong in that and that's why he's constantly getting on, on into, that, on that, into trouble and we need to say what what's true it's like you actually need your our leaders and our politicians to be fairly smart and to be fairly educated and to be fairly that, competent. on that note during the- and but on, on, no, on, on the pandemic, out. go back to day one of the pandemic. Day one, when jurisdictions around the, the world were first starting to get the wrap their head idea, like we need to close borders, we need to re- limit travel, we need to we need to cut people off from each other. How do we do this? And you, at the very beginning, 
Doug Ford came out and said, hey, everybody, go on, vac- go on March break. Enjoy your vacation. Have fun. Come on back. It'll be fine. And then the next day, had to go in and reverse that. That's been this government's response all throughout the pandemic. Say one thing, and the scientists and the, and the, pen, and the epidemiologists say, that's not what we need. Oh, let's reverse it. You know, we, we were in um, uh, the, the third wave, which was the worst possible situation for us to be in. The numbers were getting out of hand, all because Doug Ford felt, well, I'm, I'm going to lift the restrictions because my gut tells me it's okay. No, we're, 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 the, the, the trend is going down. I'm going to open up the doors and let's, let's go have a party. And, he, and to say, hey, Go out and enjoy enjoy the nightlife. He un, he unleashed the virus on the majority of us in this pop in this in this province, and that was it. And that wasn't a case of oh, we you know we misread the room. Every epidemiologist, every scientist, every doctor said, no, do not do this. We 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 need to keep going with the restrictions, and we need to keep going until we get down to a certain threshold. Then we can talk about slowly loosening them up. Instead, Doug Ford said, no, nope, I'm good. I'm good. I got it. I got it. My gut tells me we're we're right on this, and he was dead wrong. I'm. I do not have any confidence. And and I the politicians, yeah, the politicians as a whole have yeah. been wrong throughout this. I mean, I'm thinking back to so all, all the way from about last late last September through to May June time, May June time, the politicians at every level of government, well, certainly in the provincial level and the municipal level, oh. were constantly getting it wrong or constantly putting pressure on other levels to open things up. We're saying we're safe. We're the exception in terms of municipalities. Yep. We remember all the discussions yep. we had about Burlington and Halton. Um, now, they seem to have shut up now. I think maybe they learned their lesson. It's like, okay, maybe right. we just keep out of this because we're not helping. I, I hope that's true. Uh, it's not just that I can well, miss I'm hoping that maybe that somebody, somebody in the halls of power uh-huh. listened to us. We said, like, shut up and let the scientists lead this one. They, they know, you know, they're the ones who've spent their entire lives running this. And the fact is that the the, his, the, the history of this has shown you, you want, we all wanted to lift restrictions. We all wanted to go into places and, and have, you know, cheers to our friends, have a meal, all that. And it, it sucked that we weren't able to, it really did. But instead of coming up with a way to help really help people through it. It was just, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to do the hard work. I don't want to, I don't want to help actually see if I can help you out. I'll just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to wish for the best and see how it goes. And every time they do it, we end up, the, the public ends up paying the costs. And that's what I'm worried about in January is that right now, the provincial government has sent a signal to the remaining 20% in, uh, in, in Hamilton, I just checked in Halton, it's about 15% who are unvaccinated. He just sent a message to those remaining people and the rest around the province, just sit tight. You know, it, it the weather's getting cold, so you can go and, and sit indoors anyways, but come January, there's, there's not going to be a need for you to worry about this anymore. All, all of our hard work, we're forgetting about it and we're going to throw it open and my question is what what happens if we start trace if we start seeing an increase in case numbers again, which we did in the we did see an increase in January, um, uh, uh, you know, back in the going to say twenty early twenty twenty, start seeing an increase in numbers. What what if we start tracing it back to restaurants, back to 
movie theaters, back to gyms and and whatnot, like we did see. Are we gonna like? Are we gonna go back into another lockdown? Are we gonna shut down things down? I, that's and that's what I don't like. This stuff is so we're still uncertain with this. There's no plan. Everything is on a on a whim. Everything is is brand new to this government, and that's just at this point, it's a little unacceptable to to still come out to say, "Well, we we've never been here before. We have no idea what to do." We no, not good enough, guys. And at no point, you know, if you look at the countries who've handled this thing well, New Zealand tends to jump out and Australia tend to jump out. The two countries, I'm sure they've got certain geographic advantages, fine. However, Britain's also an island and hasn't worked for them. Um, they treated it extremely seriously from the get-go. They've continued to, now I know New Zealand has changed their policy somewhat of late and whatever. However, half-assing this thing has not worked at any point. Why do you think half-assing it now is going to start working? Um, it's, you know, restaurants are open now. Theatres are open now. Um, things are getting back to normal, and that's great, and we're doing it gradually. What's the big rush um, to, uh, you know, at the final hurdle, perhaps, assuming we don't get some terrible new strain coming through, Say okay, with you know those people who just refuse to take it, it's fine. Don't worry about it. No, worry about it. You know because they've slowed this whole thing down. They've made this thing much I, I more wanna, painful. I want to make it a, one to point. And this is my, uh, I guess, my last editorial on this subject matter. When you you just said that you know the restaurants are open now and we they, it's great. They are open now. Theaters are open. We are starting to see a reopening. Um, they're reopened because of the vast majority of us sacrificing so much, you know, we, we, we put in the sacrifice. We, we cut ourselves off from each other. We cut our, you know, we, we, the, the restaurant owners who abided by the lockdown restrictions, who were sacrificing, who, who really paid the cost of this, you know, uh, who really sacrificed and really stressed out over this. The, they are the ones who, who are hurting. And, you know, instead of instead of kind of catering to them, say let's make sure that you're safe so that you can stay open forever. We're not listening to them. We're not listening to the rest of us. They're listening to this minority of people who are just unwilling to accept science, unwilling to accept reality. And it's just why? Why are we catering to these people? You know, I, I I'm I'm baffled by it. I'm I, and I, but I'm also exhausted by it. Um, you know, we're we're the ones we're the ones who are doing the who are holding this this thing up. We're we're the ones who are pulling through by the skin of our teeth, and we're getting no recognition for the hard work. It's it's just okay. Well, let's let's let the uh, no. It's almost as if the people making the biggest fuss about not taking vaccines exactly are getting the recognition. Oh yeah, let's hear what you have to say. Let's let's do what you want to do because you know you're you're the ones screaming and blocking. ER ambulance bays. Um, and to me, it just it speaks of how extreme the conservative movement is because there is no electoral logic to it. You know, it's like if you nearly everything that happens in politics is about votes ultimately. That's fair enough. That's how democracy works. I never complain about people doing things for votes. They should be doing things for votes. However, there's no real votes in this. 
um, this is purely about catering to an extreme group of people uh, who are not talking any sense. Yeah, right. uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm repeating myself now, but it, it, I mean, I do think it sends a, a, a real message do, about the state of the conservative parties. Do better, parties guys. in That's this country. I can say. All right. I'm going to leave it at that for, uh, for this week. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another fun episode of the 905er. Thank you very much, everyone, and talk to you next week. That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. Candace Sampson, the voice behind what she said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter.